I have three 150 unit deals under contract at the same time right now. Mm-hmm. I would say $60 million worth of real estate. And every time you have that, you need to ensure that lenders feel confident in all these deals too. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. What up, what up? Welcome back to the Action Academy podcast, the show that helps you get rich, happy, successful, and free with a capital F in your life and business. Guys, 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 guys. I want to be the top podcast you listen to. I want to be your favorite podcast. I want you to like this podcast so much that you share it with every single person that you've ever met that is interested in real estate, freedom, business acquisition, entrepreneurship, D, all of the above. So what does that mean for me? It means that I am going above and beyond. I'm trying to make the two millimeter shifts to take this podcast from great to sensational. And now what that looks like is me flying out in person to be a fly on the wall and having actual business conversations. So it's one thing to host a podcast, which we do, obviously, every single day of the week. But now today's episode is a snippet from me and Logan Rankin talking about his bank presentations. For people that are brand new to the show, Logan is taking in about a million dollars a month net from his multifamily portfolio. I think he's got 3,024 units or something to that tune, all individually owned. He owns them himself personally with no outside capital. So in order to do this, he needs to have relationships with banks. And when he's presenting to the bank, he needs to present to the entire board of directors for the bank. So there's a specific way that he goes about that. And today is literally him in front of me doing the actual presentation that he gave to the bank that week prior. So he ran me through the slides, the PowerPoint, the numbers, the data, the pro formas. And it's very interesting how he thinks and how he communicates to the bankers and how he communicates information. So today I want to play that snippet. Now, I will say uh, it is cut a bit short. There was some sensitive information and also the video clips are chopped up a bit. So it's difficult for me to get all of them together. And if you guys remember from last week, uh, we have about four hours of podcast content with Logan. So I'm going to spread it up, break it out so it's more digestible for all of us. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please leave us a five-star rating and review. We're almost to 400 reviews and we're five away. So I need five of you to just go drop down, leave us a rating real quick. It'd be greatly appreciated. And also send this to one person that you think would get value from it. Please and thank you. Let's rock. So why I thought you would like this is because I am I have three... 150 unit deals under contract at the same time right now. Mm-hmm. So it's about, I would say, $60 million worth of real estate. And every time you have that, you need to ensure that lenders feel confident in all these deals too. Two of the three deals are in a brand new city. I'm breaking into Madison. Second fastest growing rent growth in the whole United States uh, right now. So little Wisconsin has a city that is pacing the entire nation, which is cool. I've been trying to get into it for four years, but I'll never buy a deal on market. So the last deal I bought on market that was listed was back in 2017. Everything's off market. And I put a ton of my time into our team that calls. But two pushbacks I got from the bank 
that I think this is understated. You talk about people even at three to 10 units, I was doing stuff like this, to now I do stuff like this. So when I get a question from the bank, I immediately think, why was this not already answered in the financial packet I put together? Yeah. And I'm not going to just answer it. I got two questions and the questions both came last Friday. So today's Thursday. I had a 35 minute video and this presentation that I sent them on Sunday. Questions came on Friday. So I did it all over the weekend because, and the two questions were, by the way, you were, our underwriters are worried because you're at, I currently own now 3,064 units. Mm -hmm. uh, last time we talked, it was 1,900. So growing a lot. And they're like, he's taken over these two very heavy value add deals. Can you show us or can you show us how you've done this before? Because you've never done it in Madison. So we want to just understand how you're going to reposition these properties. You obviously have a lot of units, but we want to feel that you can do that without dropping the vacancy so that they feel more confident. That was number one. Number two, we looked at your taxes. And after depreciation, it still looked like you lost $3 million. Mm -hmm. So I realized that's because of capital expenditures. Because my first answer on the phone was, dude, I spent more than $3 million in parking lots last year. Yeah. So what are we talking about here? So well, they're worried that with your kind of growth, how do you have the money to be able to fund future CapEx? Like what happens if you keep stacking? All of a sudden, you have so much CapEx that you can't keep up. Those are great questions. I'll answer that. I'll put something together for you. That's what I'll take you through today. You have a question, Ryder? Yes. One of the questions I had was in multifamily, especially like you hear a lot of people that are preaching about like the broker relations. And so some of them are like, yo, you don't want to go around the toes, like step on the toes of the brokers because the broker's like the main like gatekeeper to the deals. And you, yeah. say you specifically, you don't buy any multifamily on market. Yep. You buy them all off market. So that's against the, the grain to a lot of people that are investing in multifamily that are pounding on broker relations. So how do you go about the off-market acquisition without stepping on the toes of brokers and maintaining any good relationships there? Yeah, that's a great question. And I still believe you should have good relationships with brokers. And I do. Here's the problem though. Once a broker, the broker is really good at finding the person that wants to sell the deal. Mm -hmm. And then obviously ensuring that the person that wants to sell the deal is getting the best price possible. And a lot of times what that means is they're going to clean up all the financials, put together this really cool pro forma. It's not actually how it's running, which then dictates that the price is probably heavily inflated. And maybe that would work like even two years ago, but today with interest rates, it doesn't even make any sense. Mm -hmm. Without stepping on their toes, what I do is they don't even know about the deal before I find the deal. So basically my team and honestly, other people that are calling, like I have a couple friends now, I would call them in different areas of Wisconsin and all they do, I have friends that aren't even in Wisconsin that have found me deals or calling in Wisconsin for me because they know I'm going to pay them as if they were a broker. So I treat them just like a broker, except for the fact that I am their first call because I am going to close the deal. They're finding it off market. And I think these people that call and I have my own team that calls on top of it. So basically, they, how do I get to the deals before the broker gets to the deals? And then what I'll do what a broker won't do is I will negotiate the deal and ask for as little financial information as possible, which is something I wouldn't recommend if somebody was newer. But like a lot of these sellers that are going to sell at a good price, they don't want to put together the last two years worth of tax statements yeah. and 24 months of trailing financials. And, but, and you really shouldn't need that. You should need a rent roll 
some basic idea of what they have paid and you should be able to have enough confidence to underwrite the deal with a lot of, with a lot of their financial information. And that's good for me and it's good for them because I can probably get a little bit better of a price, but they also don't have to go through all this bullshit to put together, which is one of these deals I'm buying. The guy's owned it for 30 plus years. The last thing he wants to do is figure out, he's, he doesn't even know what a T12 is, right? Yeah. So with a broker, they'll have to go through all that because they're packaging and they're selling it to a lot of different people. And if there's institutional money that's involved, which at my size of deals, sometimes there is, they're going to need all that. Because you can't do a loan with Agency Dead or Freddie Mac or, or um, Fannie without all this financial information. But local community banks, credit unions, they will put more trust in the operator than they will necessarily all the past financials because they want they trust where you're going to take the deal, not where it is right now. So you're selling convenience. Exactly. Cool. Yep. Got it. And I don't think it ruins the broker relationship either because the broker's not even in the picture if we find it before them. Yeah. So you're not competing with the broker because you got it. Yeah. Makes I'm sense. sure the broker would rather have the deal, like be in it, yeah. but I'm not competing because they didn't find the deal first, uh, which is where you want to be. First thing I'll take you through. So first thing I want to show is this is a recent deal um, that I bought last February. The first thing that I always go through when I look at a deal is how is it currently running? So this is the as is financials. And I even put here, I actually made the rents average because this rent roll was like all screwed up. But so the rent's actually a little higher than what was actually in place. But you can see up on the top, seven, 575 for a studio, 650 for a one bedroom, 800 for a two bedroom. You can see that total gross rental income is 78,000. So this is 114 units, just under a million gross income. And then if you look at the operating expenses, you got about a 50% op X, which is pretty normal, 45 to 50%. Uh, net operating income is 38,000. So I find that most investors don't take the time to study this as much as they should. And in my presentation to the bank, I said, I obsess over this. So this 38,204 is the biggest number. This is just a business that has 114 rooms. And the objective of the business is to take the net profit, the net operating income, and build it as fast as you can, right? And then build it to a sustainable mark because lenders build off of sustainability. They call it stabilized value, right? That makes sense. If you had a business and you like had one big sale and your net profit was really high one month, but then it goes back down. That's not stabilized. Right. So when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about how do I do it as fast as possible, but I do it from a stabilized value. And there's a lot that comes into play. Specifically, I'll remind you, Brian, like one of the biggest call it is if you're going to take it to 68,000, if you're going to hang, 30,000 a month, like almost double, because I'm calling my shot. I'm saying in 13 months, I'm going to almost double the net profit. Doubling or increasing the gross income is one thing, but doubling the net profits, that's a whole another. That's a lot harder. It's how are you going to do that without losing cash flow month over month, right? What do you think is the best thing to begin focusing on? So obviously, everyone is always talking about doing like the gross like increase. Do you think it's better to start with the net increase to begin with and have a focus on that, like the net profitability, instead of just because the to your point, a lot of people are always like raise rents, like that's their plan. Yeah, buy multifamily, raise rents, increase the cap. Yeah, but like with you, you're saying, okay, cool. Let me look about it at the bottom fifty percent, like the bottom line, and let me think about all of this stuff. So you think that's the best place to start for people that are. 
I think you always have to look at both sides of the coin. And the number one way to, and I do, yes, I think the net profit is the best place to be able to start. I think obviously the easiest place to grow the net profit is on the income side, Mm -hmm. but you got to look at both. And I do believe, we'll talk about this later today, but one of the things that I've done is in our business is figure out how do we do this over and over and again with the right systems. So for example, not a lot you can do with taxes and insurance, but you can stabilize property management fees. Utilities, there's a lot of stuff you can do to actually lower utilities or rub it back in the residents. But right here is two really big metrics that you can control, whether you have a third-party property management company or it's your own. Like on my company, we know that when we take over a property, we have all these systems that we're going to be able to implement within at, at, at certain times, mm-hmm. at three months, at six months, at nine months. So we know what the operating expenses will be by the time that we're done repositioning this, which is really helpful. Because obviously, if you understand your expense, the only other thing that you were talking about that you would want to drive is the income. In Wisconsin and most across the United States, the average other income is 3.7%. So anything that is not rent, and you can see on this property, right, other income is 1.6 currently. Mm-hmm. We average, last year we finished at 11.8%, and this year we'll hit 15 so 15% other income versus 3.7 is a huge trigger to pull. So I'll talk about that later on because I'll show you the performa and what we do and how we add more. But it's just as simple as thinking about if you were a resident living somewhere and you were paying for something, somebody else, why would they not pay us? Like, for example, internet. In my market, high-speed fiber internet costs anywhere between $80 to $100, Okay. The resident is paying for that. Everybody has internet, Mm -hmm. but why aren't they paying me? So what I said is I'm going to partner with a company. I'm going to have them install high-speed fiber internet. And instead of you negotiating on behalf of one person, I'm going to negotiate on anything you have. Even if you only have 10 units, that's more than one, 100 units, or in my case, 3,000 units. So I was able to get high-speed fiber internet in 2,500 of my units at a cost of $15 a month. It's great for them, by the way. They don't have to guess who they're collecting it from, me. They don't have to collect it from a delinquent resident, but $15. Now, I can go back to the resident and charge $49.99. Resident's saving $30 to $40 a month, and I'm making $35 a month. We both win. But $35 a month times 2,500 residents. Actually, do this once. It's crazy. Do $35 a month. I like how I was about to write it out, and then I realized that I'm not smart. (laughs) $35 is the margin, right? 15 minus 50? Yeah. Times 2,500 units. 87.5. Now times that by 12 for the year? One, like basically 1.05. Now that is how much I'll make in margin, in net cash flow mm-hmm. per year. But it also increases the value, right? Because now if you were buying an apartment building for me, internet's there. I can't take it away. We install high-speed fiber internet. So you would pay more because we have internet where you're going to make $35 a month for the rest of your life, unless you raise the price and Mm -hmm. you can make more. So then you have to divide it by the cap rate. This apartment or most of my apartments are somewhere between a six and six and a half. So let's take the middle. So now divide that number by 0.0625, the cap rate. 16.8. I made $16.8 million with that deal. From internet. From internet. (laughs) 
So <laughs> like most people look at it as just like $35 a month. And if you had 10 units, you could do the math. That's a lot of money. But that's one of the best things about business. It's no different than real estate is when you add $1 of net profit, you're really, that multiple is like 16, especially if you can stay there, right? If, if you add $1 and it goes away, it's not reoccurring. But for every single thing you do in business, if you can actually create a system and it's reoccurring with little effort, which you called earlier, you can actually 16, that's a 16 multiple, right? And most businesses too, if you look at the multiple of what you would sell something for, it makes sense. Like if you were going to sell your business, right? And your business made $100,000 a year for easy math, right? There's an, and I said, I want to buy your business. And I said, I just want you to prove that without you, because your business is not stable if you have to drive the hundred. But let's say key man risk, baby. Yeah, you exact you're running the business hundred thousand. You wouldn't sell me the business for a hundred thousand. If it makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, that'd be ridiculous. Yeah. What would you do? You'd put a multiple on it. So maybe you're like, sure, I'll sell it for 1.6 million. And then I'd be like, Yeah, that's a great deal. In 16 years, I'll make up the amount of money and the likelihood I'll be able to do it faster because I'll hopefully can add things to be able to make more than a hundred thousand in other years. It's the same as real estate. It's literally the exact same. There's a multiple, which is what the cap rate helps to prove out. And most people forget that if you can just add $1. But what I really thought is, man, if you can create systems like how to implement pets or- I was gonna literally mention that because I was like, your pet fee is like 20% of your gross rent. And I'm like, so that was gonna be a question that I asked is for for the pets, is it, more advantageous to include pet at all of your properties and then just renovate the unit to where it's like pet friendly as opposed to saying no to the pets. Yeah, it's exactly right. I have a hard time believing if, especially if you're buying where I'm buying, which is really anything from 2000 or older, um, anything that has 23 to 30 years of age, it hasn't been renovated. I have a hard time believing that inside of the unit still looks great. Right. Yeah. If it, even if it was a year 2000, 23 years wear and tear, people loved carpet back then, <laughs> but especially in the 1970s, you should renovate your units. But most people that renovate units, they cut corners like crazy because they're trying to do it at the best cost. I'm thinking about in decades, what is this unit going to look like in 10 to 15 years? And if I use premium products today, what more can I do with it? So we use a premium luxury vinyl plank that is scratch resistant, pet resistant, even cat piss resistant, we say, but it's durable, which allows us to be able to be uh, pet friendly anywhere. Um, last month, we did on move-in fees and pet fees, $70,000. So if you think about that, we're closing in on a million dollar pet business. We make uh, pet stores look small. I actually did the math on this. So I divided by the amount of units. So it means on average, we're closing in about 40% of our units actually have pets. So think about that for a second. Charge $50 a, a pet, a $400 fee upon move-in. You divide that, it's almost like $75 a month per pet if you, across 40% of your units. It's such a huge... And there's a lot of other things, parking fees, garage fees. So we'll go through that later in the presentation. But there is the best thing you can think about is like, how do you help the residents save a little bit of money so that when they're leaving their unit, because another thing, Brian, that I think a lot of people get excited about is when they lease the unit, mm -hmm. you don't make a lot of money on the lease because you just spent a lot of money to update the unit, do X, Y, or Z. Where you make the money is on the renewal. 
So most of our processes are not just how to get somebody into the unit, but how to keep them there. It's why that why we have scoring charts. I'm obsessed with how fast we can fix things. Last month, we fixed any single service request that a resident put in across all 30 cities. We fixed 97% of those in 48 hours. That's that. And then I think we're at last week, 83% of the time, I can actually pull this. We fixed it within 24. I'm obsessed about this because if you think about it is if we're doing an amazing job and then something, their AC stops working in the middle of summer and we can't fix it quickly, that sticks in their mind. But if we can do a great job, fix it quickly, and then that we won't hear from them, they won't hear from us for another six months, think about the efficiency gains. And then when rent renewals come up, that's what they're going to be reminded of. It's why we score answering the phones. Our industry, nobody answers the phones. So we actually have a report that comes out every single morning and it scores us on how many calls did we not answer on the second ring. Not just answer the phone on the second ring. So last week we had 1,100, 1,200 phone calls and I think we missed 11. So we're 98% on answering on the second ring when everybody else in our industry is not even answering the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, Autumn, the one we talked to earlier, she just had a call yesterday. She shared this story at our team huddle. We asked her about it. Guys, like, she, we always answer the phone, how can I improve your life today? Because our mission is improving people's life. She answered the phone. She says it. And the rest is, ah, you already did. You just actually answered the phone. I've literally had seven different calls from trying to get my oil changed and this, and nobody picks up their phone. <laughs> but like, it's, I think most businesses don't do the simple things to a high execution, which is what we were talking earlier with KPIs. Like, you don't have to overcomplicate things. Just like, do a great job. I promise I'll move on to the next slide. But since I'm on this, you will love this. Somebody reached out. He's like, dude, how is your uh, overall experience so high? Like, how is your Google reviews high? I saw your app folio thing that you posted about service techs. Like, we have such a low customer experience. And he was asking specifically for service techs. Mm-hmm. And all they do is go in and fix things, right? Yeah, but that's but, the hardest turnover. Exactly. And after you fix something, Appfolio automatically sends the resident a survey. So like internally, you know exactly how you're doing. So he's oh, like our Appfolio score is a 2.2. And I recently posted one that ours is a 4.9, like literally. And he's and by the way, picture the person in your head that you're calling to fix something that goes wrong in your unit. Who do you picture? Do you picture someone like super friendly or somebody that, that can fix everything or like somebody that's grumpy? Yeah, uh, the grumpy. Yeah, older, like he actually knows what he's doing, but probably not the most friendly guy. So just like everything else in our operating procedure, we spell everything out simply. I'm like, oh, okay, guys. And this is Mike's team. Remember that guy, Andy, I was talking about? Mm-hmm. Andy will tell you, when you we just got to do three things when you walk in and you're going to get a great score. Can you do th- anyone can do three things when it comes to being friendly? And honestly, it's only two of the three that are actually going to get you a good experience. Number one, you knock on the door and when they come and greet you, you already know their name. It's on your phone. It's on the service request. You say, hey, Brian, and you force a smile <laughs> and you say, hey, I'm here to fix your garbage disposal. Would you like me to take my shoes off or put on booties? That's number one. That's all you have to do. Can you do that? Easy. Number two, when you walk in, you have to give one compliment. If you see the cat, I don't care if you like cats, say, hey, that's a nice cat. What's the cat's name? If you see the dog, ask about the dog. If there's no children or no animals, you see the thing on the wall, that decor, that picture, I don't give a fuck if you like it or you don't like it. Just say, hey, that's a cool piece of decor. <laughs> yep. Give them one compliment. Uh, they say something, they'll smile, they'll like it. Walk past then, 
work clean and organized, fix the shit that they needed to fix, and on the way out, say, have a nice one. And if it, just remember the dog's name, it was nice to meet you and Bob, your dog, and get the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. That's all you have to do. Like literally, that's all we do. So if you think about it, it's, that's not crazy. We're not trying to be like, you don't need to be the most bubbliest person in the world. You literally <laughs> greet them by name. You take your shoes off and put on booties, right? Give one compliment, fix the shit and get out. That's all, as a resident, if you think about it, that's all you want. That's actually probably more than they expect. So for all of our processes, we just try to break them down to make them really simple. And we can go over later about how you're like maintaining and how you're compensating for that position because that's the big thing that everyone's going to say is I can't find good people, let alone keep good people. So like, that, that would be, be a whole other topic of conversation. Agreed. That's why we're here all day. <laughs> and that's honestly one of my favorite things to talk about too. <laughs> And I don't think it's talked about enough because as you, like we were talking about before, who cares if you can sell or finance to be able to get into this 114 unit building. But if you don't have the team and you can't keep the team and you can't renovate all the units and you can't follow up with the GC and you don't have the systems, like what are we doing? Yeah. Over again, what I keep seeing and like what you're like really personifying here is everybody I feel is trying to be an investor. Everyone wants to be like the big investor over the last 10, 15 years. And that's the trend that we're like getting out of is going from the investor mindset to the business owner mindset. Yeah. Because how you run it, and I think your competitive advantage here is like you've got the biz ops experience and then you're able to just say, okay, real estate just is a business. Yeah. Like anybody that has a big real estate company, like they're just really good at business that just happens to put like real estate in the container of that. That's exactly right. But everyone does it backwards. Everyone yeah. is like, oh, I'm really good at analyzing a deal and negotiating on the front end acquisition. But then what? Yeah. <laughs> I'll hire an operator. Yeah. You're going to go into that later. So we'll stop. <laughs> Man, yeah. You're going to take 10 hours to get through this. PowerPoint. <laughs> um, so this is just an actual, the actual appraisal, because I think as you probably have noticed, there's a lot of people that say they have done things, but they actually haven't done things. So I like to call this out and I wanted the bank to see this is this was done 2-9 data report, 2-9 of 2022. And then there was an as-is appraisal and a subject-to appraisal. Do you know what those are? Mm -hmm. Okay. So as-is complete. So this would be the pro forma, right? So the appraiser comes in and they say, I highlighted over there. All right, you say you're going to do $3.5 million worth of renovation cost, which breaks down to about 2.3 in unit rehabs. 400K in common areas, rebrand, underground parking, and 750K in roof, windows, and patios. So this is a really big, especially because I bought the deal for 7.1 million. Mm -hmm. I'm almost spending half of that amount on just the renovations, right? So a really big lift, obviously mismanaged. And they said, if I spend that much, they the appraiser said, we think you can get gross income to 1.18, which is about $100,000 a year. So you remember on the last side, it was 78. Most importantly, NOI, which determines the value. Net operating income, they think I can get that to 690000 which would be fifty-seven five dollars a year. I, when I did this, I remember saying, I think that's low. I think we can do better than that. Cap rate they gave me was six and a quarter, which turns out to have a stabilized value of about $11,050,000. Bought it for 7.1, has the potential to get to eleven five. But if you think about it, seven one, I mean... 3.5 million, you're all in for 10, 10, 5. So you go through all this work in about a year 
I have the potential to make about a half a million dollars, maybe half a million to 750,000. Before pictures, so this is what the outside of the building looked like. Some more, some weird, great stuff. That on the right, like yeah. it looked like almost like a prison. Beautiful bathrooms. Oh, got the yellow there. So one of the things I always share with the bank too, and I think a lot of people guess at Brian, is when I'm going to rebrand something, I see a lot of good investors be like, "Oh yeah, I, like I know the." right colors and how to do the units and they'll just I, I've seen some hideous looking bathrooms renovates that look better but like for no money they could have just used better colors or different materials or like instead of a circle mirror a square mirror or like you if you have no business figuring out what the customer wants or the brand you shouldn't yeah. so if, Megan does a lot of that now but before Megan we would actually hire this out so we would hire out ROI, but return on investment by design. So they would take, this was the before pictures. They would put together a rendering of what it could look like. They would share the inspiration. So I'm, I'm sharing all this with the bank as well too, right? Because I want them to have confidence that, hey, we're renaming this thing from the Regency to the Forge on Webster. Here's how much money we're putting into it. The rebrand strategy is not a guess. It's exactly what it's going to look like, which is going to be completely different. Throughout that process before day one, what my team and I do through inspection, we walked every unit, we measured everything, we put a plan in place, we literally bullet point how much every renovation is going to cost, uh, and then we come up with a rent increase strategy because obviously the only way to rehab the units is for the resident to move out. Mm -hmm. And we just do that two ways. One, obviously it's under rented originally on day one. So we start implementing other income and rent increase. Let's say hypothetically it's under market rent by $500. We're obviously not going to go from zero to 500. Most likely everybody would move out. We'd have no cash flow, could never cover the debt. Mm -hmm. So we'll pick a number that we feel is confident that about 30% will move out that first month. And you got to remember, not everybody's in a month to month lease. So this is 114 units. It's likely that if we're taking it over, maybe 30% are not in a lease. So maybe there's 30 or 40 people we can get rent renewals to. Let's say we're going to give a $200 rent increase, plus you're going to pay for your own utilities, plus we're going to start charging for pets now, maybe a couple other things. So maybe total is $250 net profit gain. Because when you raise rents, expenses don't raise. Yeah. So it's like net profit gain. So how many people are going to leave? We measure that. A lot of people don't. It's just guess. So let's say of the 30 rent increases we give, all 30 leave. Now it's just a matter of, could we renovate, could we handle 30 at the same time? Even us, the likelihood is no. Mm -hmm. So maybe next time we give 100, so we change up the plan. Or we've had times where we've given $200 rent increase and nobody leaves. That's great news because we just got a huge amount of net profit with no renovation. So the net, in, the net next time we do this, now we're going to raise it $250 or $300. We basically let the residents tell us how much they're willing to pay and if that's going to force them to move out or not in month one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. So the next nine months of the year tells us how much we're going to push so we can see the move outs to be able to renovate the units. So what do you do if nobody moves out? Raise faster and harder. Okay. So when's the next one? Is that another annual or? Is no, it every annual? month. Got it. So because leases are usually signed at random times, right? Somebody moves out. So when you take over a property, there's usually... It's not exactly 10, but every single month there's a different number. 
Mm -hmm. So it could be on this 114 unit actually worked out really well. About every single month, there was somewhere between 10 to 20 new leases that were ending that needed rent increases or rent renewals. Mm -hmm. So we were able to accurately say, here's how much of a rent increase. What is, and then say, hey, we, we predict 35% are going to move out, which is exactly what we want. And we can predict that because the last three months, that's exactly what happened. Got so it. next, so that's the first thing that we do. We also over-communicate, Brian, all the updates. So dude, like you look like a jail before. Like within the first 30 days, look at how beautiful the outside of your building is. Look at the landscaping that we're doing. The safety is a paramount. We, we relit the whole thing. Elevators now work. Underground parking, you can actually park with that feeling like you're going to get stabbed. There was like no lights down in the underground parking. It was really bad. Also, we're going to charge you for it though. But so we start showing them and communicating them before we even do the renovations, which give us a greater likelihood that they'll pay an increased amount of rent because they see that they're getting something in return. I think you're right. A lot of investors, especially syndicators, they just raise the rent, but they won't do anything. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a higher likelihood that people are going to move out because you're not giving any value, even if they're under market rent. So we do a lot of those things. Second thing that we do is we offer them to move to a renovated unit. Hey, like first couple units that we renovate, come and take a look at it. Here are the pictures. You're getting a $200 increase, but this brand new one, if you pay a $400 increase, literally everything is brand new. Mm -hmm. So pay an extra $200 that you're going to have to anyway, eventually. Everything's brand new, which is awesome for us. Guaranteed lease, market rent, plus it opens up a unit that's not rehab. What's the normal vacancy whenever you're like taking over a property before you do the rent increases? Are you having a vacancy number in your buy box? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I've had on this particular building, there was 37 vacancies of the 114. Okay. But in my contract, I said while it was under contract, they could not do any more leases. And people knew that it was going to be sold. So people started just leaving, mm -hmm. which is exactly what we wanted because this was a heavy lift and there's a lot of bad people here. But typically, I would say I love at least 5%. So I'm 5% vacancy? Yeah. I would have thought it would be higher. I would want, yeah, that would, the higher the better, especially if you're renovating. But these days with supply and demand, it's most of these units, especially because I'm buying, if you think about it, the properties I'm buying, rent's always low, mm -hmm. way under market rent. So a lot of these residents are just not moving because there's nowhere else to go for the same kind of rent. So. So we're looking for the 5 to 10% organic vacancy and then artificially build it up to about 35%. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, you want to build it up as much as you can. But now I would tell you, you also want to be careful. Hey, real quick. If you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want. And I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.